Welcome to Ebers Vacuum Laboratory Talk Podcast. I'm Dan Rutherford, and I've worked in multiple roles during my 24 years at Edwards, and I'm currently the market sector manager for analytical OEMs. And I'm David Steele. I'm the market sector manager for R&D, and I've been involved in vacuum technology for about 35 years, just over 25 years of that time at Edwards. Hi, and I'm Todd Tivote, and I've held various positions within Gamma Vacuum and Edwards Vacuum since 2009, primarily supporting UHV and XHV customers and sales channels in North America. So in our last podcast, we talked a bit about direct reading gauges, like the capacitance manometer and the strain gauge. Yes, that's right. They use a direct physical force characteristic, the physical pressure of the vacuum environment, compared to some other reference. In direct reading gauges, like Pirani gauges, which we'll talk a bit more about in a minute, they use a characteristic of some other indirect behavior related to pressure within the vacuum environment, such as thermal conductivity with a Pirani gauge, for example, or the ability to pass an electric current with an iron gauge. So most indirect gauges as a result, in fact, most modern vacuum gauges are electronic instruments which have some sort of electrical output that represents the pressure reading. Right, and then, so it's pretty easy to then use that signal to drive something like a digital display, a meter, or even convert it from analog to digital to feed something into a PC or a PLC as part of the wider system. Indeed, and some modern gauges do just that and only have digital outputs. So most vacuum gauges cover many decades of vacuum pressure. How do they manage that? Oh, you mean like the Edwards wide range gauge? Yeah, that, that gauge measures an atmospheric uh, atmospheric pressure, and then deep down into the high vacuum range, you know, in the 10 to minus 8 millibar area. Wow, so that's like 11 decades of pressure differential. Yeah, it's huge. And, and you, don't you have to have a voltmeter that can read down to nanovolts to make something like that work in the lower pressure regions? Well, most modern vacuum gauges use a log linear style output where one volt of output represents one complete decade of pressure change. But with a simple bit of behind the scenes math accomplished by the controller, you can cover a huge range of pressure with quite simple instrumentation. Okay. Well, before we start talking about Pirani gauges, what is the difference between a passive and an active gauge? Yeah, in terms of the actual gauge technology itself, you know, the sensor that's used to interpret the pressure in the vacuum chamber, they are exactly the same. The key difference, though, between an active gauge and a passive gauge is that in a passive gauge, the gauge head itself has no electronics, no transistors, or no processor chips connected directly to the gauge. Those are in a separate and usually a rack-mounted or a desk-mounted controller, and there's a specialty cable that runs between the two devices. And active gauges, on the other hand, are usually modular complete widgets, you know, single components, and they have all of the processing and signal conditioning electronics directly connected to the gauge tube. So the output from an active gauge, instead of being signal level and difficult to interpret, is a pressure reading. Uh, it, it's an, the, the active gauge typically has a zero to 10 volt DC output that corresponds to the pressure that the gauge is reading. So you supply the gauge with power and it gives you an easy to interpret output. Some of them even have displays directly built into the gauge head itself. All right. And these days, the majority of the vacuum gauges are what we call active gauges. And because they are very versatile, the controllers can be pretty much universal. 
In other words, they can both power and read many types of gauges and gauge technologies. And because active gauge controllers are just really a power supply and a sophisticated voltmeter that interprets volts and displays it as a pressure. With a passive type of gauge, the controller is usually dedicated to the type of gauge it's connected to. So if you decide you want to change to another type of gauge technology, you also need to change the type of controller that you're using. Well, active gauge controllers like the Edwards TIC and TAG instrument controllers can usually take multiple gauge heads. We have controllers that can take one, two, three, even up to six gauge heads. And it makes it pretty easy to include uh, to include gauge reading functionality in th into things like your turbo controllers so you can make it a multi-use device. And that gives you lots of flexibility down the line if you decide you want to add different gauges or a different type of gauge technology. Uh, active gauges also avoid using specialty cables that are usually quite expensive. Um, Edwards active gauges, for example, use a relatively inexpensive flat ribbon cable, the same type for every active gauge, so you don't have to change the cabling. I've heard that you can even use Ethernet cables for those, can't you? Well, yes, you can, but you do have to bear in mind that Ethernet cables were designed for digital signals, and Edwards active gauge cables are analog output, so they, they do have a different type of electrical signal passing through them. And most active gauges have pretty low power requirements, so they're not all that fussy about the cables. But if you get into some high power gauges, in particular ion pump gauges, they do need a cable that's rated to carry the amount of current that it takes to drive one. Basically, the wires are a bit thicker and a little bit more than just the standard Ethernet cables that you can find. So high-quality cables that are rated for power over Ethernet are usually a good alternative if you don't or haven't got the uh, OEM cables. But it's important to say don't skimp on the cabling. So this is not the place to pinch the pennies then. I got you. So let's talk Pirani gauges now. So Pirani gauges are used all over the place for things like rotary vane pumps, scroll pumps, and similar types of, of primary pumps. That they operate on the principle of the amount of heat lost from a thin wire filament that's heated to around about 100 degrees C. Right. Then there's some behind-the-scenes electronics that vary the amount of current running through the filament as the pressure changes, and then it's this change that the gauge uses to actually measure the pressure or report on the pressure. So thermocouple gauges used to be used for this job, didn't they? Uh, they did, and TC gauges are still out there. And they do use a very similar heat loss principle to a Pirani gauge. Um, it's sometimes a bit difficult to make generalizations, but thermocouple gauges tend to have slower reaction times to Pirani gauges and, relatively speaking, a much more limited pressure range over which they can operate. And they operate at a much higher temperature also, like 200 to 300 degrees Celsius, which can be problematic. So is it true that a Pirani gauge doesn't give particularly accurate high-pressure readings? So it's true, yes. At the higher pressure end of the vacuum range, roughly sort of 10% of atmospheric pressure and higher, uh, there's enough gas density that means the principal way that heat is lost from, uh, from the heated filament inside the gauge is through convection currents. Uh, so I get it. So the heat from the filament actually causes the gas to, to rise because it's being heated. Yes, and that messes up the reading from a standard Pirani gauge to the point where it's really inaccurate. It's sort of indication only. 
But some modern, modern Piranha gauges, like our APG 200, for example, they actually do give an accuracy figure for that last decade of pressure, but it's still pretty granular up there. So why can't this problem be fixed? Well, it can. You know, with a convection-enhanced type of Pirani, for example, which uses a modified gauge tube and electronics design to give an accurate pressure reading all the way up to atmospheric pressure. Okay, and presumably that adds complexity, so it also adds cost. Unfortunately, yes, it does, Dan. Uh, but if you want accurate readings all the way up to atmospheric pressure, it's usually a cheaper solution than buying two separate gauges to cover the range. And for many large laboratories and other vacuum applications, the time spent roughing down the first part of the vacuum system evacuation is so fast, it's really not all that important to measure it there. So for these sorts of applications, and I'm making some air quotes here, it just doesn't really matter that much. So the extra cost is just not really justified for that second gauge. And that's why we see Pirani gauges everywhere these days. Yes, exactly, yep. That's it. Okay. So I have another question, as usual. What is the difference to, between gauge certification and gauge calibration then? Aha, that is a very good question. One of our most frequently asked questions, in fact. Hear that all the time, right? So gauge calibration is a routine procedure that's carried out when the gauge is manufactured. But it can also be, and it should be carried out at the point of use where the gauge is being installed. Calibration with most gauges is simply the act of setting two ends of the pressure scale. So, for example, with the Pirani gauge, you'll set atmospheric pressure, and then you'll set it uh, a vacuum end of the scale with the gauge pressure exposed to pressure lower than the gauge, what the gauge can actually resolve, and that's the zero point of the gauge. There's no other adjustment when you calibrate a gauge. You're not actually changing the gauge's characteristics between those two points. You're just telling the gauge where atmospheric pressure is and kind of where your zero point should be. Uh, and with most modern vacuum gauges, say anything made in the last decade, 15 years or so, uh, the calibration's usually simply a matter of pressing a button on the gauge head itself or sending a calibration signal to it. Uh, with some older gauges, you might have to make an adjustment with a small variable resistor, a potentiometer on the gauge head itself. Right. And remember that all gauges come from the factory calibrated. But it's also typically a good practice to do a field calibration once the gauge is installed in its final orientation. You know, changing the position from vertical to horizontal, for example, on the gauge can make a small difference in the two ends of this pressure scale that the gauge is reading. Okay, so then what is certification? Well, certification's done after you've calibrated a gauge and it's a completely separate, it's a measurement only step. There isn't actually any adjustment or changes done to the gauge at all during certification. What certification does <clears throat> is it compares a gauge, a gauge under test, to the output of a gauge that can be referenced to some sort of nationally recognized test standard. So commonly in the US where we are, the reference gauge would be referenced to an NIST, National Institutes of Standards and Technologies laboratory gauge. The certification, though, can be pretty time-consuming and therefore quite expensive, Dan, right? So with a certified gauge, you get a certificate that'll typically have a graph on it showing the gauge that's being certified and the outputs all compared back to this reference gauge, again, referencing back to the NIST standards that David mentioned. Okay, so this doesn't change the gauge in any way. The accuracy of the gauge, if it is certified, is exactly the same as any other gauge of that type. So how often should you recalibrate your gauge or gauges? 
Well, that really depends on your particular requirements. Some applications may need quite precise and quite accurate measurement standards with frequent calibration checks and and uh, and monitoring and and uh, record keeping. While other applications where the gauge is only being used, say, as an indication, you, you might not even need to do it at all. So it really is dependent on your particular situation. All right. So what is a gas calibration then? Gas calibration is best described as adjusting the gauge's output to account for different gas species characteristics that alter the gauge's output to account for these differences. So applying this adjustment can allow you to use the gauge to measure 100% helium, for example, without having to apply corrections after the fact. It can get confusing, though, particularly if you're using multiple different types of gases on the same gauge. So that does need to be kept in mind. So this is where it might be a good reason to use a direct reading gauge like a capacitance manometer then. Yes, it is. Uh, but in a great many applications and installations, particularly where the gauge is really being used for indication rather than process control, uh, you may not really need to do it. This can be something that you need to bear in mind rather than something that you must do. It's very, very much an application-specific decision to be made. Indirect reading gauges like Pirani gauges are really good, rugged, and long-lasting. They're also relatively inexpensive compared to fancier technologies like capacitance manometers, and that's why you see them being used in many applications. So how do we measure low pressure? And I, I mean pressure less than 10 to minus 3 millibar then. Well, because the gas pressure and density is so low at these levels, the gauge technologies that work uh, really well at higher pressure levels, like Pirani gauges, for example, basically stop working at lower pressures because there isn't enough gas density to support the way that particular technology works. Um, the thermal conductivity of a gas, say, between the 10 to the minus 4 millibar and 10 to the minus 5 range is so vanishingly tiny uh, that it would be very difficult to measure, at least using a thermal-based vacuum gauge directly. So there are really two main types of gauges used for low-pressure measurement. The first one is the ion gauge, sometimes called the Baird-Alpert gauge, and the official name is coming from the inventors of this technology. This is sometimes also called a hot filament gauge, right? So yeah, so that filament is inside inside the gauge has electrical current passed through it until it's glowing red hot like it like an old school light bulb. That's right. If if we want to get fancy, it's using thermionic emission as its measurement principle. Uh, forgive me for oversimplifying how it works a little bit, but a high voltage gets applied between two specially shaped wires that form an anode and a cathode inside the gauge itself. The heated filament that's in there causes the rarefied gas that's in the gauge to ionize, and the small electric charge that this results in allows a small electric current to flow between those two uh, wires, the anode and the cathode. And it's that change in electric current as the vacuum pressure changes that this type of gauge uses to indicate what the pressure is. And then besides the Bayard-Elpert, there's also penning gauges for measuring low pressure too, right? That's right. Yes, a penning gauge, sometimes called a cold cathode gauge, uh, an inverted magnetron, a gauge like our Edwards inverted magnetron, that uses a high voltage discharge between two electrodes. Um, the discharge cons is constrained by an external magnetic field. 
um, that's supplied by an external magnet. And the current that travels between the electrodes is used to measure the vacuum pressure. All right. So which one of those is best, an ion gauge or a penning gauge then? Well, that question gets off often asked while choosing one gauge over the other. And sometimes it can come down to a personal choice or even regional preferences or even a, your company or, or organization's preference. Sometimes it just comes down to the application itself. Where is the gauge being used and uh, what is it being used for? Although we would be getting a little bit too deep for this conversation today because this can get really complicated for you know choosing one gauge over the other. Okay, so what about wide range uh, pressure ranges? The ones that cover atmospheric pressure down to say 10 to minus eight millibar? Well, uh, the vast majority of this type of gauge, the ones that cover really massive pressure ranges, um, they're actually two or more gauge technologies housed in a single housing. For example, a gauge like our wide range gauge, that contains both a cold cathode gauge and a Pirani type gauge. Right, and independent, each of these gauges is optimized for a different pressure range, rough, high, and ultra high, for example. And the gauge's internal electronics selects and swaps between these two, depending on which gauge is most appropriate for any particular pressure range that's being measured. Okay, so that way the gauge can automatically switch the high vacuum gauge on and off. That way it won't be damaged or contaminated by trying to run at the wrong, in the wrong pressure range then. I yeah. get it. Yes. I get it. So, well, I, th I think we're about running out of steam here. Um, so maybe we should wrap today's podcast up. Uh, great. Great call, Dan. In our next podcast, uh, we're going to tackle the subject of a general introduction to primary pumps. So it'll be our first vacuum pump discussion. Right. And please always remember, continue to check back with us in the future as we are still hoping to release a new podcast about every week or two. And if you'd like to reach us, reach out to us or have any questions you would like us to answer during a future podcast, please send us an email to podcast at edwardsvacuum.com. That's all one word. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to include any questions that you have in future podcasts. And if you have an immediate need for information, please don't hesitate to reach out to us or any of our technical support folks at Edwards Vacuum by emailing info at edwardsvacuum.com.